News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here live over Zoom with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Hello, Harry Siegel. How are you doing? I'm living the quarantine dream, still sheltering in place and wearing a mask. Oh, boy. So the MTA board is meeting as we're recording this on Wednesday. The outlook there, the technical term, the industry term, I believe, is that the train system is completely fucked if we don't end up with significant federal aid, but at least as of now, is not forthcoming. Later in the episode, you're going to hear from Alex Lynn about drain bramage, which in some ways is going to be our theme this week. It's a fascinating sewer symphony. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Brick House, the wolf-proof journalistic co-op that FAQ NYC is joining. So stay tuned, but first, the school year is about to begin. Chrissy, have you finished your uh, syllabi? Harry, don't call me out. (laughs) (laughs) I have my syllabus done for my class that meets tomorrow. My class that meets on Monday will get a syllabus by this evening. Yes. (laughs) I pray. And are you going to be seeing any of those students in person, or or is this going to be Zoom? No. Online only, and I've already written in my notes to talk to my students about what happens if we get Zoom-bombed, which was a phenomenon that happened uh, last semester with kind of white nationalists kind of coming into certain classes. I have in my notes to discuss what happens if we have a Zoom outage, like what happened earlier this week, and (laughs) I had several meetings canceled. I think we'll communicate over WhatsApp during the week just so we can easily share news articles that kind of come up in people's various feeds, but I will not be meeting them in person at all. I don't know how many of my students will even be in New York, so we might even do some creative asynchronous and non-synchronous meet times just because if people are in different time zones, I want to just make sure I'm accommodating to them. This will be my first full semester of teaching online. I've never done it before in all the years I've been teaching, so I'm kind of excited. I mean, I love meeting my students, but I'll just have to figure out new ways to get to know them and, you know, build mentoring relationships with them. I was always telling my students, just teaching on the side, participation is really important and I want you to be engaged. And Mm -hmm. if you don't want to do this in in, in the classroom for whatever reason, like it's just very important that you're then talking to me online so, Mm -hmm. so I can bring some of your things up. And I'm just curious to see if this is going to shift who participates, who dominates and, you know, sort of can't stop talking or asking questions and like that set of dynamics, which were fascinating for me, you know, 20 years out from being a student, the sort of experience from the other side and trying to uh, manage a class. Right. I mean, I, and the good thing is I have practiced from our emergency two months of teaching and I'd already established relationships with my students. So I, I had a, a feel of, you know, the chatties versus the quiets and I was able to pull them out, pull out, you know, more of the quiet students. What I found was really helpful, though, is like I, I started, <laughs> I like to collect data. So I started each class with, you know, students kind of telling me on a scale of one to 10 how they were feeling. And I would kind of chart that to make sure my, I had a, a few students that just stayed as threes. And then like when they were four, I'm like, yay, what's been, like, what's happened? You know, and then. 
uh, just the normal ups and downs. I've also been reading a lot about what not to ask students. Certain things are common sense, but you know, I like to have cameras on, but I'm being a lot more accommodating for people who don't have their cameras on just because I don't know their housing situation. Some people obviously are in beautiful homes with bay windows and a pool in the background and other folks are in their bathroom or their bedroom because they have tons of siblings and you can just tell there's some class differentials. So I told my students, I was like, listen, you can have class from the bedroom, from the bed, because for some people, that's the only space they have. I was like, pets are welcome. That's like a nice distraction. And for some people, it decreases the anxiety of being on camera and feeling like everyone's staring at them. So I love the pets. Like we have just cats who like walk around and like, I'm bored. I hate this class. (laughs) Dogs who are totally interested. And then sometimes we have like siblings who, you know, I'm like, if your sibling wants to just kind of sit in, sometimes you're babysitting your sibling, you know, so... I'm just trying to to do fun like quizzes at the beginning and breakout groups and I feel like I'm like teleporting in like Star Star Trek style when I like jump in their Zoom room. So it's you know flexibility is the the name of the game. That's you know that's all we can do. Like it's a global pandemic. Just reminding them yeah. we're in the middle of a global pandemic, so we're gonna do our best, all of us. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to think a lot about the uh, the teleporting in Star Trek. You know when they get beamed up and beamed down. Mm-hmm. I'm like, so the thing that's beamed down thinks it's the same James Kirk and has the same memories and is composed the same way. But isn't this just a brand new, newly born James Kirk, whereas the other one has been disintegrated? I think about that a lot. And now my kids, who I beg not to do this, like come in and zoom bomb my classes, not <laughs> not in the same terrible way. But but hey, let me tell you, my dad doesn't know anything about journalism, but I'll tell you what's not boring. Right. Look at this Lego sculpture. But, I mean, they're pretty cute, so I think that that's great. Now, how are you all teaching journalism? I guess people can be out and about a lot more, but, you know, like talking to sources and strangers, I mean, you're teaching people how to do that in, like, a safe and effective way. How difficult is that for, like, young journalists to kind of be out in a city, where some may or may not even feel comfortable with that in regular times, but to like talk to people in the middle of a pandemic and try and get them to to open up about whatever it is they're asking. It's really difficult. I I have always found that teaching journalism is fairly ridiculous. And I tell my students that they should probably drop out and get a job if this is really what they want to be doing (laughs) and just do journalism. And if they're not going to do that, that that's how they should be spending the time in the class, going out, talking to people, uh, doing research and actually producing news because it's not—it's not actually a field of study mm. um, in the way that that history is, or sociology, or anthropology, or lots of other things. It's a practice, and the best thing you can be doing is going out and talking to people. And then, in much more normal circumstances, I'm always trying to make sure that they're conscious of their own safety. Mm-hmm. Thinking about these circumstances, I often encourage them when when they're doing more difficult or ambitious reporting to go out in Paris. Um, I always mm-hmm. told them, you know, I'm your editor for the semester, and if you're out and something weird is happening and you're not sure, number one, you know, if you don't know the answer, the first thing you should do is is withdraw, you know, so you're not gambling with that. And the second thing you should do is contact your editor. Mm. But see, and, I feel and, like that's like something that for some needs to be taught. Yes. You know? Yes. Because <laughs> I feel like, isn't it both and? Like, can it be... The practice, but also the history. I mean, like, we know that famous story about the journalist who interviewed the grave digger on the day of JFK's funeral, as opposed to following the story that everyone else is following. So it's like... Jimmy Breslin. 
young people learning about the history of good journalists will think differently about journalism? Is it, you know, you see what I'm saying? Like I do, I do. And, and uh, As opposed to just I, going on their instincts, which for some people are just wrong, and that's why we have bad journalism out there. Uh, I think it's in Best of Show. It's in one of those movies. No, Waiting for Guffman. Uh, oh. he, he, turns, he turns to his wife and says, th- just think about your instincts, and then whatever they are, do, <laughs> do the, the opposite. opposite. <laughs> do the opposite. Right. But – I, I did not know Jimmy Breslin. I'd sort of encountered him around, you know, a few times in New York in the course of reporting on things. And as it happened, the day of his funeral, my colleague, Michael Daly, who was very close to Jimmy Breslin, was going to be uh, speaking there. My boss at the time and friend, John Avalon, who was the editor-in-chief of The Beast, was going to be going to the funeral. And long story short, my father had had some health issues. And I said, maybe you should try pot. And he said, okay. So I reached out to a friend of mine who worked at Vice at the time. And I was like, do you know where I can get like the good liquid pot? Because he didn't really want to be smoking it. And he got me some of that. And I went to a head shop in the village. And, and I was like, can I get a vaporizing device for this? For my dad. <laughs> for my dad. <laughs> and I have the liquid pot with me. And, and I take a hit just to make sure the device works. And I start walking to my office. And then there was a, a terror attack in London. A reporter calls me crying about something else that's happened and just just needing to get talk through i'm walking to the beast office i have to keep telling the reporter hold on i'm going to call you back so she's crying for two three minutes at a stretch i'm going through my emails like trying to handle our coverage walking to the office i get about halfway there from the village to chelsea and i realize that i am i am extremely excessively stoned from this one <laughs> test hit to make sure the device worked for my dad of course for my dad for real and it's 8.30 in the morning, man. And <laughs> I get to the office and I get to the elevators and John Avalon is there in a very nice suit. And he says, come on, man. T- takes my shoulder and he says, we're going to Jimmy Breslin's funeral. I did again. I did not know Jimmy Breslin. I'd been a few months earlier at Wayne Barrett's funeral. It was very important to me. I was there. And I understand this is sort of a gathering of a New York journalist tribe. But I, I am I'm now stoned out of my head and, and, and just not good for that. And so thinking incredibly swiftly, at least as I recall it, I'm like, I have to handle – you You have to go to this and you need me to handle the coverage of this attack. Right. And he says, okay, and leaves and I <laughs> exhale, go upstairs <laughs> and handle the coverage of this while not speaking to anyone, not making eye contact and not leaving my desk for about six hours, at the end of which I was somewhat less stoned. Somehow the coverage all worked out okay, but it was uh, fairly – Fairly intense. Uh, I can imagine uh, there's nothing worse than <laughs> accidentally vaping way too much and then being asked to deal with a terror attack, a crying colleague, a father who still needs his marijuana, and the possibility of going to a funeral of a very well-respected journalist where you would presumably see almost everyone in your field. Yes. It, it, <laughs> it was a lot. It was much more intense than the time... I was editing New York Press, and my wife's old boss came in directly from Katrina, which he'd spent on the roof of his bar eating mushrooms at 8.30 in the morning, and then gave me chocolate because I was hungry that was filled with mushrooms uh, on the day I had to put out my first issue. So, so I've had a few of these somehow. <laughs> I feel like you should just, A, not take food from, from people without asking specifically, are there drugs in this food? And B... <laughs> Maybe, just maybe, if you're going to do anything, make sure it's at the end of the day and you are at home and there's nothing to do. (laughs) 
<laughs> that being said, today's episode, <laughs> we've got lots going on. What's going on, Harry? So back to schools for a minute. Chrissy, do you think schools are going to open um, in, what, 10 days, as the mayor is promising? Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see if teachers strike. I think schools will open. I don't know how long they'll be open. I don't think we're prepared, considering we had all summer to sort of prepare ourselves. But for some reason, we've gone through very few measures. Uh, I'm really worried about the kids who don't have internet capacities. So if and when schools do close, they might be sent home with some worksheets, maybe, if teachers can get the resources to get that together. Uh, but I am curious to see if, if teachers are going to say, you know, the mayor and school chancellor have not presented us with safe, viable options. I mean, keep in mind, these teachers have to, many of them have to be on subways and buses. They travel great distances to teach in their various schools, stairwells and elevators, and all of these things have to be thought of, cafeterias. Are we protecting the staff? Are we financing the types of cleaning materials that the staff and teachers need on a daily basis? I mean, we know kids are like little germ factories. So I really feel for teachers because they've been asking this question all summer long. I mean, I, I definitely feel for parents, too, because they've been asking this question all summer long because they've been looking at their kids since March. But I think teachers, I would probably say, and this might be a conservative estimate, but like 95% of people who choose to teach actually really want to do it. Like, they love their students. Uh, you know, they, they find that there's some institutional challenges, but they've chosen this profession. They haven't chosen to be eye bankers or lawyers for a reason. You know, I mean, it's a real privilege and an honor to educate the future generation of this country. I mean, at least that's the way my philosophy of teaching has always been. And I think that many teachers share that. So the fact that the mayor and the school chancellor still don't have a plan and, and we're in late August says, A, we're ripe for a strike. And if we're not, we'll send kids to school and we'll realize that it's a totally unsafe environment, no matter what percentage of students show up. And they come back home, leaving parents to scramble teachers to scramble, and those who aren't fortunate enough to have strong internet to have yet another few months of no education. You know, Zoom crashed the other day. So pretty. if, you know, the school system isn't back up and running, then that's going to be more strain on Zoom. Skype is already half bogus. Then we've got like blue jeans and Google Chat. So all of them will be strained. Uh, and what are the contingency plans? To say nothing of kids just like looking at a screen, like they're not interested in being talked at from a screen. I'm not interested in talking or being talked at from a screen. So I'm sure as a seven-year-old is, is, is been done with it. Like seriously, I think that we should just scrap the whole school year. 2020, 2021, scrap it. Everybody stay in place. Get yourselves healthy. Just take a chill pill and like work on knitting or paint or whatever. And then we just like regroup in 2021 where it's like we can come back as a strong nation. I just think that we keep doing this like Band-Aid piecemeal and we might end up in the cycle for a really, really long time. So right now you also have all these moms and dads, right, who are trying to track Google Classrooms and those logins to find the Zoom passcode. Oh, wait, now we're using a different video service and it becomes mm -hmm. logistically a little insane. We have this unanswered question, one of many, about who's going to be teaching remotely. You know, even if school is open, your kid's going to be there two, three days at most 
schools and then being taught remotely the rest of the time. It's not clear who's going to be instructing them, how that's going to work, uh, you know, from a parent's perspective, from a child's and from a teacher's. It, it just seemed to be a lot of pretty incredible variables. Part of this, of course, is that we have this standoff with the teacher's union and the principal's union about what is and isn't okay. A lot of this comes down, of course, to what's happening in Washington. Same as with the MTA, same as with everything else. Like you can't fill in what you're doing when there's an X in the equation that, that's billions right. and billions of dollars. And then you have right. the Taylor Law. Like teachers can't strike, which is why they want to talk about this and signify and have like, you know, factions of the union discuss it in the hopes that this pushes the mayor off. But it means this great uncertainty for parents about is school really going to be open? Are teachers really going to be there? Can you count on this from from this week to the next as an ongoing thing? It just all seems very nebulous and frightening at the moment. The mayor, as we're doing this, is about to be uh, with the chancellor, uh, looking at the HVAC system and like you know doing an inspection of one school. Right. The teachers say they're doing their own inspections. In the meantime, Chalkbeat, the really excellent you know education focused news site has a resource for parents that's well worth checking out where you can sort of see the information about the systems and the ventilation at your kid's school mm-hmm. and get some perspective right. on that. But but no one no one really knows. Because we're also not talking about the numbers of kids who have childhood asthma, which obviously disproportionately affects Black and Latinx kids. You know, I mean, teachers, unlike the NYPD, can't get overtime. But, you know, we're also asking teachers, and this was a conversation we had among professors, you know, you're asking people to plan classes and, and plan all these extra contingencies, but it's like, so am I getting compensated for this extra time that I'm doing all of this work? I mean, I, I'm just, yes, I'm doing it because I love my students and obviously a good syllabus is a great semester, but there are a lot of teachers who are like, you're asking me to do a lot, a lot extra. And what do I get for it? You know, and keep in mind, quite a few teachers have kids of their own that they're trying to figure this stuff out with. So I just think that, you know, the frustrating piece is what have we been talking about since June, July and early August? Why is it per usual with someone who loves to show up late? Why are we having this conversation in the very last week of August about school openings? This was a question that parents had in March when they're like, I'm looking at these children. If this doesn't change by the end of the school year, what are we going to do? Because parents were essentially saying, all right, I, I think I can hold on till June, but like, you better be able to get my kids someplace in September. So figure it out. I know it's not all the mayor's fault. Obviously, he has constraints with the governor and the federal government for sure. But I just feel like these conversations about HVAC systems, these conversations about how, you know, there are lots of kids who take school buses to school. Like, how are they going to get to school? Are they going to be able to be on a school bus? Do we trust seven-year-olds to keep on their mask? I mean, I'm seeing adults just take down their mask and cough, you know? I live in an area that has a particular group of folks who don't wear masks at all. They don't even carry masks. It's just, they don't wear them. So I feel for teachers greatly, but I also feel for parents because the uncertainty piece must be incredibly frustrating. I mean, the only certain thing in this moment is the uncertainty. There were 180 days to sort this out. It was one thing in March to say, we're doing the best we can here with these moving parts. It's very distressing to see that as we're getting right up to 
September. Labor Day. Back to the Taylor Law for one second. It is fascinating to see with both teachers and police officers these questions about work slowdowns, about who's actually going to mm-hmm. show up and who can get forced to, and to see the NYPD a little separately from that starting to really scramble, like taking away Saturday, Sunday weekends from just about all the officers who still had those and a lot didn't, as they're having – they did not have a billion dollars cut from their budget. They really have not had their budget sliced entirely, but it's not going up in a way that they've been used to. They're feeling just a little bit of pinch, and you can see between that and some of these concerns about shootings and so on, like Shea trying to use the managerial tools he has and change how people are working in interesting ways um, and realizing how little leverage – When there's less money and tremendous uncertainty, the people who are supposed to be running these systems, the chancellors and the commissioners and even the mayor, entirely have. Uh, It's one of many things that's been humbling Mm -hmm. in the course of all this. Right. I mean, and I I think this Taylor Law piece is really important because, yes, it's a 1967 law that says, you know, public employees cannot strike. But there are other ways that we can sort of massage and negotiate this, like— non-striking ability, but also in the midst of a global pandemic, there might be some factions of the teachers union who were like, you know what? So be it. Like, I'm not going to risk my life for failures of the local state and federal government. Yeah. So on that cheerful note, let's cross over (laughs) to a sewer music or as the kids say, (laughs) Muir Susick. Here's Alex Lynn. I don't want to give too much away. Check it out. At some point over the weekend, an old friend of mine, Stefan Zanuck, who I know from hanging out on the Bowery, calls me up and asks if I could help him film something pretty unique. Stefan is a composer. He's a saxophonist. He's an animator. He's really a, one of those artists of all trades kind of guys. He was going to play a jazz concert inside of a sewer drain and this sewer drain was underneath a Costco parking lot in Astoria Queens the whole affair was co-conceived and organized by this guy Nathan Austin this is one of these gatekeepers of New York experience the kind of guy that will get a bunch of people to stare at a sewer drain because he likes the way jazz sounds echoing inside of it against the sunset. Also helping organize is Danielle Butler, who was rowing me around in a canoe just so I could film it. I roped uh, Adam Levy, husband of mine, into also helping doing some filming. And it was just, it was just incredible. Stefan is here with me now. Hey, how did you come up with this idea and first of all the name drain bramage what does that mean 
Uh, hey, Alex. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on this. So the name Drain Bramage uh, Nathan came up with. And Nathan's an old friend who does all sorts of events involving urban exploration and putting on shows and experiences within the, uh, I guess, the urban jungle, you could you could look at it as. Uh, so he, so we came up with this idea a couple weeks ago or maybe a month ago, and then he just sent me an email, subject heading Drain Bramage. And Drain Bramage, of course, the drain is, you know, where we were. We were in a sewage overflow drain and the term drain bramage, I believe, refers to when you're searching for a word and you can't quite access it. You can't wait, what's what's the right word for this? I had no idea that such a perfect phrase existed. I, I hadn't either, but Nathan uh Nathan is a a man of of strange thoughts and unending knowledge. <laughs> and it was uh, sort of a perfect title. So what hooked you guys up in the first place when he had this idea? What first came to mind for you? Like maybe a month ago, there was a viral video going around of a saxophonist in Europe playing in, I think it was a grain silo. And he just sent it to me. It was about one in the morning. It was in the midst of the pandemic. Nobody had any sense of... Uh, time uh, or space and he sent it to me and he said oh you've probably seen it I hadn't seen it and then a couple emails go back and forth late into that night and he said you know there's a place there's a drain in Astoria that we could put on a concert that would be entirely socially distanced because literally the musician is inside of a drain. <laughs> and and then I just said, yes, let's do it. So the um so the idea kind of came from the echo. And by the way, a grain silo, that guy has nothing on a queen sewer. That sure, yeah, you guys, no, it was, way it was, cooler. It's sim- similar but different, right? Well, one of the things that I've done quite a bit over my sort of schizophrenic career has been to put on performances that take on acoustic and environmental, take those into account. And so a performance is less perhaps about the actual music that I'm creating, but more about a way of connecting the audience and the musician with the space surrounding it and the sound surrounding it and and also understanding uh, n- the natural acoustics of our world. Just like people are very aware of uh, how beautiful a day is or how overcast a day is or how beautiful a sunset is or how eerie it is right before a rainstorm, um, people have less of a general tendency to to pay attention to the acoustics and the sound the natural sound of the world around them so i i enjoy you know sort of playing with that aspect and of course something as extreme as as this massive drain tunnel was uh you know it also sort of felt like i was playing music into the center of the earth 
And you had also brought up at the time, I think right after you finished playing, you had said, hey, did you guys notice I was kind of, I was doing like a call and response. I forget exactly what you said, but you said, did you guys notice I was working in with the crickets? And Yeah, there are these cicadas that were just brutally loud. I mean, they almost overpowered my performance at a certain point. They were just really, really loud and and I just was sort of forced to relent and I for about five minutes I was I was playing back and forth with the cicadas. And um, when I first met you, you know, talking about, you know, a vibe, I'm I there is really no better term for it, but you know, composing a vibe. And um the not when we first started hanging out, it's at the Bowery Poetry Club. I know we're both city kids and one of my favorite stories is that when the Bowery Poetry Club closed, you launched, you debuted the flaming saxophone, the flamophone. And I was mm-hmm. trying to take photographs of it, and I got so close that I almost singed myself. And you were a little worried, but you kept on going. And that was probably the coolest thing I had ever seen. It was a really, really fantastic, fantastic thing to get that call. And... um Thank you so much. Is there anything that you're doing that you would like FAQ's listeners to check out? Uh, well, I don't really have any uh, – <laughs> live performances are kind of out the window. Uh, so I'm spending most of my time composing and animating. So I don't actually have any live performances to plug. But I suppose if people are interested in what I do, you can go to Stefan Zenuk, Z-E-N-I-U-K dot com. And there's some more of my, uh, you know, sort of experiential uh, performances documented in various forms up there. And and also and your band, and, Gato Loco, is also out there on the internet land. Yeah, we're actually finishing up a, a new album that's been sort of sitting sitting around for a little bit, but that should be coming out this fall. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, listeners, if you would like to please enjoy, I know you heard a little bit of it in the intro, but please enjoy the wonderful sounds of Drain Bramage. Oh, my God. 
So a couple of programming notes. First off, FAQ has just joined Brickhouse, which is a co-op of nine journalistic sites covering everything from New York City, of course, with us, to American muckraking, to Pan-African news, to a world cartoonist. You can find out a lot more if you go to Kickstarter. Search for Brickhouse if you need to. Right now, we're the lead thing on Kickstarter, which is swell. There was a nice article in the New York Times. But this is 97 episodes. We've never asked listeners to contribute anything except their thoughts. If you'd like to uh, participate in this Kickstarter and join us in these other journalistic groups, we would truly love that. And you'll be hearing a little more about it in the coming weeks. Speaking of the coming weeks, for the Labor Day weekend, we'll be coming at you late. So look for a Saturday episode with us recording Friday. And I'm Handsome Harry Siegel, and those have been your programming notes. Ta-da. <laughs> FAQ NYC is brought to you by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, where we used to record and hopefully one day will return. I'm Professor Christina Greer. With me and my co-host, Harry Siegel, we'd like to thank uh, Stefan Zenowick and Nathan Austin of Drain Bramage. As always, Alex Brooklyn is our executive producer, and Adam Kamara is the wonderful cut and mixer of this entire episode. Be sure to tune in next week, a little late, at FAQ NYC. Take care. Wear a mask. A little late, but always great. <laughs> and always on time. No more rhyming. I mean it. Anybody <laughs> want a peanut? Adam's like, I'm done with y'all after last week. 